0: Most often when I preach, I try to give some kind of introduction, some kind of story or illustration to ease us into the message, but, you know, we as you can tell from Clint's reading, we've got a lot to cover today, so I've got no illustrations. We're just going to jump right into the deep end here. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, this is verses 7 through 16. When, when we studied last week, we got back into Ephesians, the first six verses of chapter 4, uh, where the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, he calls us... Uh, he sets a very high bar at the, on the first verse of Ephesians 4. He says, uh, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Live in such a way that your life reflects that you've been given the grace of Jesus Christ and it's transformed your heart. Um, but he specifically tells us, in that context, he's talking about not purely a personal walk, but he's talking about unity in the church. And so Paul calls us to pursue unity together. And in that way, we, we live up to, in a sense, the grace that Jesus has given us. But beginning in verse 7, Paul takes a little bit of a step back and he's going to tell us about the individual role that we play in this unity. Um, God has not created us as Christians simply to be robots who kind of carry out a program that has been prescribed for us. Uh, we're not lemmings. Anybody know what a lemming is? Back in the early days of the, the personal computer, oh, I don't know, the early 90s maybe, there was a little game called lemmings where it was all the little same kind of si- little men. They all walked in a single file line. And if you directed them the wrong way, they would all fall off the cliff one after the other. They'd all follow one another off the cliff. So you had to keep them going in the right direction. We're not lemmings. That's not how the church is described in the scripture. We are individually gifted, called, and we are individually valuable to the mission of God through his church. And that's what Paul's going to enforce here. Now that he's called us to unity, what how does how do you as a human being, individual, how do you contribute to this unity? Well, that's what the next portion of Ephesians 4 is about. So in verse 7, Paul he turns this corner here for us and he says, but to each one of us, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Almost always in the Bible when we see that word grace, it's talking about saving grace. Uh, When Paul uses the word grace, it almost always means the grace that saves you and that gets you into heaven, that forgives your sins. But right here it carries a different meaning. When Paul uses the word grace here in verse 7, This is what we call enabling grace or empowering grace. This is a gift, this grace, is a gift that Jesus gives to each one of us that enables us to to serve a unique and meaningful role within the church. You've been saved, yes, but that's not where the story ends for you. You've been now equipped, you've been enabled, empowered to live in a certain way that pleases God within the context of the body of Christ, the Church. Uh, We sometimes will call these spiritual gifts. That's what Paul's talking about here, spiritual gifts. Uh, He doesn't go into the particulars about spiritual gifts, and we're not going to do that today either. We're not going to go in a direction that Paul doesn't take us. But if you're interested in learning more about the particulars, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can do some personal study. Eventually, we'll talk about the particulars of, of gifting at some point, but not today. The point today is you have been gifted. You have been given enabling grace for the sake of God's mission in the church. So you're not a limbing. You're not a robot. Uh, We're we're not all programmed to be exactly the same. God has actually created us uniquely for a unique purpose that contributes to an overall goal here. And uh, in verse 8, now Paul kind of steps to the side here before he elaborates on on verse 7. He's going to Give us an interesting little piece of theology here. Okay, verse 8. Therefore it says, and he's quoting from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Parentheses. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. There's a debate, uh, an ongoing debate, on what Paul actually means here in verses 8 and 9. Very smart people on both sides of this. But there are some people on one side of the debate, when Paul says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, they take that to mean that in between his death and his resurrection, he actually went into Hades. Uh, In the old Apostles' Creed, we say that uh, Jesus... Uh, died on the cross, and he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again. And so the idea is that he actually went into hell after his death and before his resurrection. Now, there are a lot of smart, godly people who believe that. Um, I I tend to to think on the other side of the fence, which is that that Paul here is not talking so much about um, physical Descent and ascent, as he's talking about spiritual, and 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 so I take this to mean verse eight and nine, Jesus is humiliation and his exaltation. I think that's t- I think that's more of what Paul means here. Uh, and so if you think about that, when when Paul says that Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth, I, I think he means this: that Jesus Christ, Philippians two, who existed in the, the very form of God, who was in very nature God. Uh, did not hold on to or take advantage of his privilege as God, but he emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, and he took on the form of a bondservant. Jesus humiliated himself. He descended. He was born in a feeding trough. He, uh, for much of his ministry, he was homeless. He was crucified as a criminal. He descended. He condescended. He he took himself out of his rightful place and made himself as low as a human being could go. He made himself nothing. But having descended, God then, Philippians 2 tells us, gave Jesus the name above all names. He ascended. He was glorified in his resurrection and his ascension. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's made his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so here's how I take this, that Jesus has triumphed over his enemies And the idea that, for for Paul to quote from Psalm 68, the idea of uh, taking captive a host of captives and giving gifts to men. Uh, In those days when a conquering king came home from war, a victorious king, he would lead the procession and behind him there were the captives, the prisoners of war, a lot of times high-ranking officials or even defeated kings, Um, but then also the spoils of war behind them. The, the gold and the silver, the jewels, the relics that they had taken with them. And now the king who returns home would disperse the wealth to his people as a magnanimous gesture. He's a victorious king. This is Jesus here. King Jesus, who has triumphed over Satan and sin and evil and death. He now comes in his victory to distribute gifts to us, to his people. Not physical gifts, but spiritual gifts. And so Jesus, who has conquered, who has ascended, now he gives to us according to the measure of his gifts, of his grace. And that's what we now have. We are the recipients of that. That's what I think those verses mean. Now, Paul kind of comes back into what, what he means to tell us in the first place here, which is, what's the purpose of these gifts? He doesn't get bogged down in the particulars, you see, but he wants, to, he wants us to know why we have them. Why are you uniquely gifted and called and meaningful to the church? And he's, he starts by telling us why leaders exist— but you're gonna see the purpose even of that. He says verse 11, and this is so, oh man, verses 11 through 16 are so foundational to Harvest Church and to any church, I would say. Uh, They ought to be at least. Very, very important right here. Verse 11, and he, Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, Jesus has designated some people to to lead the church, from within the church, to lead through the proclamation of God's word. That's the point here. Again, we could kind of get bogged down. Uh, Do apostles and prophets still exist as offices within the church today? I say they don't. Um, That was a unique office in the New Testament but we could say that evangelists and pastors and teachers still do and are still functional within the church. But the point is, the the larger point that Paul is making here is that Jesus gave these leaders who proclaim the word uh, in an intentional way for the building up of the body. John Stott says this, nothing, he says, is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. Now, I read these verses and I read Stott's uh, commentary and that gives me a deep appreciation uh, for what I get to do as a pastor. But at the same time, you notice this, Paul spends very little time focusing on the leaders. He makes mention of them and their purpose and he just keeps on going. He doesn't stop and wax eloquent on how wonderful it is to be a pastor. He just says, very matter-of-factly, here's what the pastor's role is and then he moves on. And I appreciate that, and, I, and I'll just say this parenthetically, there is no such thing as a celebrity pastor, regardless of what our, our culture tries to, you know, put certain people on pedestals, or you know, it's even the inclination of my own heart. I've got pastors that I admire and that I try to be like, and I kind of treat them like a celebrity almost. I was eight feet away from one of my heroes, Tim Keller, back in May, and my heart started racing you know, like, what am I going to say? If I shake his hand, what am I going to say to him? What if I shake his hand and I kind of miss? You know, sometimes you can miss. And, you know, like, what, if, what happens if I miss? Um, because in my mind, he's a celebrity, but that's a, that's a ridiculous thing. Pastors are not celebrities. Pastors are not heroes. Um, we don't have a special phone somewhere that connects directly to heaven that nobody else has access to, all right? Um, but what Paul is indicating here, that to be a pastor, to be a teacher, Is a unique calling. It's special. It's it's, it's important. But it's not a better calling than anybody else has. And in fact, Paul makes us, he makes sure that we understand the purpose of God giving leaders to the church. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. And you see right here why I say there are no celebrity pastors, there are no pastoral heroes. Because Paul says that to be a pastor is to be an equipment manager. And as a, as a former football player, there's an appreciation for an equipment manager, okay, who makes sure that you have the right size helmet and shoulder pads. You've got everything you need. But I, now, raise your hand if you can name a professional equipment manager. Paul knows. Paul's a, you've got a history with those guys. Um, you don't know, they, they, they don't get their name in the paper. Nobody, when, when a team wins a Super Bowl, they don't hoist the equipment manager up on their shoulders and run him around the field, do they? He, now, does he serve an important purpose? You'd be, you'd be in trouble without him, right? Uh, but he's not the hero. And Paul says that's what, a, that's what a pastor is. A pastor exists to equip the saints. Uh, my job is to equip you, to outfit you, to empower you, to encourage you, to teach you so that you can be a minister, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting here, if we've all been called and gifted uniquely, that means that I have perhaps one gift. I don't have all the gifts. You don't either, but you all have gifts that I don't possess. And if, if I am the bullseye somehow, because I'm the pastor, and a lot of people do church that way, then I'm operating out of a fraction of what God actually intended the church to be. And in fact, we become um, impotent we're not powerful because only one person is trying to do the lifting here. And a lot of times, church is set up that way for the pastor to be the hero. And that's not what we're going to do here because that's not what the scripture says. Uh, you know, the, I, th- I think we adopted that from the old kind of the Catholic way of doing things. I'm not, you know, being mean to Catholics here, but it's, uh, it's this idea of the priest who does the ministry, the priest who knows the Bible and nobody else gets one. And so we're going to come and and kind of draft on to his wisdom and and his godliness. And he will study the Bible so I don't have to. And I'll just sit and I'll learn from him and receive from him. That is not what Ephesians 4 teaches us. The whole church does the whole work of the ministry. The pastor serves a particular role to equip you all to do what God's called you to do. And what you do collectively, what we do collectively, is far more significant than what any one person can do. And so verse 13 now, Paul's going to tell us, what does that building up look like? If that's the purpose, the purpose is not everybody gather around one man and he'll give you God's word. No, we're, we're here collectively for something more. And, and verse 13 tells us what, what for. It says, until we all, and there it is again, we all... Attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This, verse 13, serves as a progression, okay? It's meant to build one on the other. And and I'll just notice this here, that we are meant first to attain to the unity of the faith. That doesn't mean that we're just all saved. The faith here in verse 13 is talking about um, what we collectively believe and hold to as foundationally true, that we are there's nobody in here who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus actually raised from the dead. Um, You you may believe that, but in that case, you and I need to talk. We need to have coffee Um, because that is not unity of the faith. Now, are there particulars that we might disagree on? Sure. But in terms of what is essential, what is absolutely foundational, that is what Paul's calling us to here, that I exist as a teacher to help ensure, and, and as eventually as we have elders who lead our church, we're ensuring a very particular unity of belief, of the faith. And that unity then produces the second thing, the knowledge of the Son of God. That's, a, that's not just head knowledge. That's the knowledge that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. It's a deeper, experienced knowledge uh, that's, that has its foundation on head knowledge. But it's deeper than just that. And as we grow deeply in Jesus Christ, we grow into a mature person. And that's just the truth. Uh, you know, in, in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that, that, um, that, that the church there should have been more mature than they were. They get chastised in Hebrews because they, have, they still have need for the elementary things. They want to repeat kindergarten over again every year. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, no, you need to be teaching. You need to be maturing. You need to be eating meat, not just drinking milk. And so that's the goal of the church, that as we establish unity in the faith and we grow deeper in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we're maturing as a result of that. And here's the kicker, the last part of verse 13, the most important part, the, the goal, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That that God's word and God's grace would dwell so richly within us collectively that we would begin more and more to resemble Jesus. That, That the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that when people look at us, they would see Christ. If somebody looks at me, they might see a little glimmer of Jesus. I hope they do. But they don't see the fullness of him. Because that fullness is reserved for the church. That when we all collectively reflect Jesus Christ, we reflect him in his fullness. Remember, I only have maybe one gift. I only have one facet. But the church gathered has, a, has them all. I believe that. Or we're meant, we're meant to. And so we, we, we are, are elevated as we mature in Jesus to the fullness of his stature to reflect him. If you, uh, has anybody ever been to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas? If you, oh, you got to go to the Alamo. I'm a, I'm a Texas boy, so it's, it's near and dear to my heart. We studied probably two weeks on just the Alamo in elementary school. If you go to the Alamo, the Alamo was a mission that was used as a fort to fight off the Mexican army when Texas was fighting for their independence, and everybody in the Alamo was killed. It was a small, it was a band of, of men fighting for the, for the freedom of Texas. Uh, Mexico far outnumbered them, they were all killed. But it was one of the, the kind of the, the watershed moments because eventually Texas did win their freedom in San Jacinto and the Alamo kind of stood as, as their rally cry. Well, there, if you go into the Alamo, there's a picture on the wall of a man named James Butler Bonham, who was one of the men who fought and died for, his, uh, for Texas's freedom. But under the picture, there's an inscription that tells us that this is not actually his picture. Because no picture of James Butler Bonham exists. And so the picture on the wall is of his nephew, who bore a striking resemblance to his uncle. And so it's the closest thing they have to the actual hero is a fair resemblance of him. Now, that's a very, very interesting image, isn't it? As to what Paul is talking about concerning the church. Nobody really knows what Jesus looked like. But when people look at the church, there's meant to be a resemblance. There's meant to be a fair facsimile, a reasonable reflection that when people look at us, flawed as we are, sinful as we are, that we have collectively something about us that measures up to the fullness of Jesus Christ. And when we open this book to teach from it, that's ultimately our aim is not that we would all feel better about our own lives or that we would be you know, motivated to try harder or that we would be uh, sent out individually to try to live a better life. No, but when we teach from God's word, it's ultimately for that goal that we would attain to the fullness of Jesus Christ together. That's Paul's hope for us here. And uh, here, notice this outcome in verse 14. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, uh, J. Vernon McGee is a guy who had a radio uh, program. And if you've ever heard, you never forget his voice. If you just hear it one time, had a great voice. He was a Bible commentator. J. Vernon McGee said this, I would hate to get into an airplane if the pilot didn't know any more about flying then the average church member knows about Christianity and the Word of God. Jay Vernon could get straight with some people, okay? Uh, He didn't mince his words. Here's his his point, and here's Paul's point. There are a lot of false teachings, uh, a lot of false teachers in our world. That was a problem in the earliest days of the Bible, and it still is. And part of the struggle with false teaching is that it's often done by people who are very talented, very great, good communicators, Uh, large congregations, television programs, and and the like, books. Um, But the church's responsibility, the church's responsibility is to grow into maturity in such a way that we don't get carried away by every wind of doctrine that comes along. That because something sounds interesting or because it's delivered in an impressive package does not make it true. And so the church, again, Paul says, the reason we attain to unity of the faith and to maturity into the fullness of Christ is so that we collectively can combat false teaching when it comes our way. Um, and, and that we wouldn't fall prey to it like ignorant children, he says, who are, who are easily tossed back and forth by trickery and deceitful scheming. So part of knowing the truth is that we're here together, me by myself. And I, you know, I, I think of myself as a fairly you know, level-headed guy, but if you put me in seclusion and fill my head with things that sound good, some of it's probably going to stick. And that doesn't make me a bad person. Okay? That's just that's maybe just part of human nature. And so I need y'all, we need each other, to make sure that we're rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and how do we do that? Well, here's the last little part here, 15 and 16. And here's where we really need to hone in. But speaking the truth in love, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what does Paul say here? He says biblical truth packaged in Christian love is what produces unity and maturity i'm going to say that again biblical truth encased in christian love is what produces unity and maturity uh he he, paul has made it very clear how important the foundation of truth is we have to know the truth and we have to be unified in the truth as to what the gospel tells us that we cannot just just be carried about by everything that comes along. We have to stand firmly in it together. But simply knowing truth will not make you mature. And this is a mistake that I probably still make and I've made many times in the past. That if I know enough, then I'll be a spiritual person. I'll be close to Jesus. But that's not necessarily true. The truth is I could, I could stand up here week after week after week and just berate y'all with true things and just beat you silly with true things until we all just limp out of here one day and decide never to come back, right? But it's, it's, it's a certain kind of speaking of truth. It's speaking the truth in love because that's the character of God and that's the character that God's truth produces. A person who really knows the truth of the Bible should necessarily be a person with a loving heart. You may not, if you know this book, it doesn't necessarily make you smarter than anybody else. You don't have to be brilliant to know God's word, praise God. Um, But to really know him through his word is going to make you more loving than the average person, far more. It's going to change your heart. It's going to transform you. That's what God's love and grace produces in us. And so when biblical truth and Christ-like love meet, when these two things meet, verse 15 says what happens, we grow up. We mature. We grow up in all aspects into christ who is our head that means that we all become who god intended for us to be um, because we're playing this thing out together i say this often for a reason um, in, a, in american christianity we're often kind of given a lone wolf mentality that's kind of, that's how we're expected to walk this thing out if you're if you're a christian it's just me and jesus right And so we kind of walk this thing out uh, in silos all by ourselves. But you notice how Paul concludes in verse 16, that last verse. He says, from Christ the head, the whole body, that's us, the church, the body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If, if I came to you and I said, man, I'm sick of just drifting spiritually, I'm, it's, I'm getting serious about Jesus, man. I'm, I'm done you know, tiptoeing around it. I'm getting serious about Jesus. And you, of course, are very thrilled for me. And you say, okay, Kylie, that's great. What, what, what are you going to do? What's going to be different? What's your plan? And I said, okay, I'm going to get a Bible reading plan, and I'm going to do a daily quiet time, and I'm going to have a devotional book, and I'm going to start listening only to Christian music on the way to and from work. And I'm, I'm going to subscribe to some, some sermon podcasts. And I'm going to start you know, posting more Bible verses on my Facebook wall. You, I hope you would say this to me. Kyle, that, those are great things. Do those things. Please do those things. But you have no context, Kyle. You have no framework. Because you have taken devotion to Jesus to mean a singular pursuit divorced from the church. It's all about you and your personal discipline, which of course is great, but you have no framework for what Paul is saying is ultimately what makes you mature, what makes you vi- viable as a Christian is not only a personal walk with Jesus, but a collective commitment to his people, to the church. So my, all, all of my, all of my uh, disciplined pursuit of Christ in that case has a limit. I'm going to continually run up against a boundary that I cannot cross because God has not created me to walk alone and to pursue him alone. And we notice how Paul pictures pictures the church in verse 16. He does this elsewhere in Romans and Corinthians and other places. He calls us a body. And he he gives us a very, uh, he's meant to give us a visceral uh, image here of a human body. That has a head the head directs the body you take the head away and the body is lifeless jesus is the head he's the one who gives life and direction he sets the agenda for the body and he says and, and we comprise what every joint supplies we're fitted together he says and there's a proper working of each individual part so does your individual relationship with jesus matter supremely and I, and I would say this, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not spending time with God in a consistent manner, then that needs to be addressed. We've got to talk about that um, because it does require an individual commitment to Jesus. There's no way around that. But it matters to the degree that, I, that I'm one joint in a larger body. It's not just about me. It's about us, and my individual pursuit contributes to you. It's meant to. And so when Paul says that we're, we're like joints that hold this thing together, it means that we are single parts, yes, but of a larger organism. And no one part of the human body can exist and thrive on its own. You take any part of me out and just set it on the table, and it will die. It will not function as it was created to function it can't because it's been severed from the whole and not only does the individual part die but what happens to me i suffer now anything you take out of me i'm not what i ought to be as the whole and so that's that's the image that paul gives us here and i think one of the greatest challenges for me and i just admit this and it's probably a challenge for you too it's a challenge to unlearn because i've i've only ever been an american christian and I'm, you know, I love being an American, but we have this sense of individualism that it's just me and Jesus and it's so hard for us to break out of that that we've got to unlearn it and begin to experience a life that reflects Ephesians 4 as primary before I ever start to have conversations with myself about my own personal holiness. If my own personal holiness trumps my commitment to the church, then somehow I've missed the teaching that the Scripture tells us what, what holiness actually looks like. Um, has Jesus given you an individual, unique gift and purpose and calling? Yes, um, but the purpose of that gifting is the building up of the body in love. And so I want to. I'm going to close. I'm going to try my very best to condense these ten verses into one sentence. It's really I had a lot of trouble doing this. You'll you'll see. It's, there's a lot in here, but I want to just I want to say it. In, I want to try to say it in one sentence, and it's a run-on sentence. I'll admit. Okay, Um, you just have to deal with it, all right? There's a few, I got some comma splice issues in here, I'm sure, but here it is. Uh, Who are you? Who are you? You are a uniquely gifted minister of the gospel of Jesus. And you are fundamental to the unity and the maturity of the church, his body, so that we together may reflect his truth and his love to the watching world. I'll say it again. You are a uniquely gifted minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are fundamental to the unity and maturity, the building up of his body, the church, so that we together may reflect his truth and his love to the watching world. That's who you are. You may not think that way about yourself, you may not feel that way, you may think you've been discredited or disqualified, but if you have received the grace of Jesus to be saved, then you have also received the grace to be empowered and enabled and to serve. And, uh, you know, we're going to get more detailed about personal holiness the next two weeks, so just hold on. Paul's going to get there, but I just want us to chew on the context that Paul's giving us, the framework. Before it really matters how personally holy I am, we've got to understand that my ultimate purpose is not personal holiness. And I, that, to me, that's kind of a scandalous thing because I'm all about it. I want to be personally holy. But if it's, if it's me siloed off, siphoned off from the rest of you, then really it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I'm circumventing the whole purpose of God calling me to personal maturity, which is the maturity of his body and the building up of his body in love. And so maybe you grew up thinking like I did, that the pastor is the minister and we come to watch him. He prepared all week, and we're going to sit and listen and be respectful and just glean from him because he knows his Bible, and I'll just let him tell me what's in there. I don't have to know it. And maybe, I mean, that's, that's how I grew up. That was my impression. The, you know, the pastor's up there. He, he's the one who's supposed to know this stuff, and he'll just tell me what to do with it. But how much would your life change, potentially, if you took Ephesians 4 to heart? If we all took Ephesians 4 to heart, that the pastor, that I, in this case, that I exist merely to equip you, to help you to live out the calling that God has placed on your life and ours collectively, that you get to be a minister of the gospel. I'm here to support you as you, in the unique ways that God has gifted and called you, you get to live this thing out powerfully in ways that I can't possibly do it. J.D. Greer is a guy I like a lot, a pastor in North Carolina. He says, the day I became a pastor, I left the ministry because I left the world where every single day I'm rubbing shoulders with people who need the gospel. Now I'm just around church people all the time. He says, you're the ones in the ministry in a different and more meaningful way even than I am. And you know what? I think that's right. The day I became a pastor, I left the ministry. You're the ones at the ground level. You're the ones on the front lines, and I'm here to equip you. What would happen if we really believed that? And maybe you've always understood the Christian life to be a private and individual pursuit. It's just me and Jesus. But what if we took to heart God's word, Ephesians 4, that says your Christ-likeness is directly dependent on your commitment to his church. It's not just you and Jesus. How much more open and engaged would we be with other people? How much more devoted would we be to one another? How much more eager would we be to bear each other's burdens and to really listen to and love each other and speak the truth in love, how much more prone would we be to confess sin to each other and trust that we're safe and that we have opportunities to really grow and sharpen one another? How much more likely would we be to serve each other if we really believe that it's not just me and Jesus, it's us? Well, why don't we find out? I mean, why don't we really take this to heart? Remember, we're in seed form. It's a fun place to be. Because at some point, this thing's really going to start growing. Uh, Numerically, I don't know. But if it begins to grow in our hearts, um, if we really take what Paul is saying and let it root deeply within us, then I don't think there's really any limit at all to what the Lord Jesus Christ can produce in people who really believe, man, I'm here, uniquely, meaningfully, I'm here for the building up of something way more significant than just me. Let's pray about that. Lord, we see it in your word that that you you care enough about us to impart grace to us beyond saving grace. You you have given us gifts. You've enabled us. You've, you've, You've given us, each one of us, you've given us something meaningful and useful and necessary for the building up of your church. And Lord, that I, oh, I prayed that we would just, we would respond in joy. I did not deserve any gift. I do not deserve to stand where I'm standing. I do not deserve to rub shoulders with these people, and call them my brothers and sisters. It's all grace. You have gifted us, and Lord, that gifting should should compel us, Lord, not to. Um, you know, we studied a few weeks ago that the, the servant who buried his talent in the, in the ground, that, Lord, we should not be the kind of people who siphon ourselves off and just try to make it about you, you, and, you and me, Lord, and that's all I need. But that, Lord, we would be just compelled, joyfully compelled to want to be around your people, to contribute to their good. To serve them, Lord, and to and to do it, Lord, for the building up of your body because we're reflecting your fullness. We're the, we are maybe a dim reflection of you, Lord, but we're a reflection all the same. And the more we follow you, the brighter that light becomes. And Lord, I pray that we would we would have such a heart uh, that says, I, I want to be, I want to give my life uh, to Lord, to your kingdom through your church. And Lord, I thank you that it's not even, you know, it's not even about Harvest Church. My goodness. We, we, we're just one little seed in the ground. We're one slice of the pie. We're, we're just, I, I, I pray, Lord, that it would never just be about us. But I do pray, Lord, that we would contribute um, to uh, the, the ministry of the harvest. That we would contribute, Lord, that we would be the kind of people who are so enamored with your grace that we just, we just can't get it out of our mouth. We just, it just, it's always on our lips. Lord, we just want to talk about you. We just want to praise you. We want to celebrate you. And that, Father, that you would allow us to be in community together and to have something so wonderful uh, to strive for as our goal. To the maturity and the fullness, Lord, of Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. Um, Lord, let that, let that humble me, and Father, let, let that drive me outward. I tend to want to make it just about you and me, Lord. Don't let me ever do that. Um, push me out of my comfort. Push me out, Lord, into, uh, into the lives of these brothers and sisters of mine so that we can uh, do what you've called us to do together. And let us count it a privilege, because that's what it is. We thank you in Jesus' name for this. Amen.